Before we get going, disclaimer, you know, we are not financial advisors. All investments are subject to risk, including the possible loss of money you invest. Perform your own due diligence before making any decisions. Hire a CPA like Brandon or others. <laughs> um, and with that, let me uh, introduce Brandon. Thank you very much for joining. Um, Brandon is a CPA. He's a, a national speaker, also the founder and uh, managing partner of Hall uh, CPA. And Brandon works with real estate investors, syndicates, private equity uh, funds, really to optimize tax positions um, in the accounting and business functions. Uh, he has been investing and he has a number of units, 25 units, possibly even more of multifamily, single family and short term rentals. Uh, his past experiences have been with PwC, Ernst & Young, uh, before founding his own uh, firm, Hall CPA. Um, I also worked with, uh, and this dates me, uh, Arthur Anderson before <laughs> Anderson uh, folded, so really dates me. Um, so with that, uh, Brandon, I'll let you take it away. All right. Thank you very much, John. Appreciate you inviting me here today to speak to everybody. Um, so what we'll do is I'm going to run through a presentation and I'm going to be just talking about the tax benefits of investing in real estate. If you've been investing for a long time or if you've listened to our podcast or if you've you know watched it, my other presentations, you might have kind of seen some of this already. So just bear with me. Uh, but uh, we have we have I think how much time do we have? We have um, call it like an hour and 15 hour and 30 hour 15. OK. So as we go along, uh, since we do have some solid time here, feel free to drop questions in the chat as we go. And I will circle back to them towards the end of this presentation. So let me get rocking and rolling. Let me get my little laser pointer. All right, here we go. So um, I am, my, my name is Brandon. I founded Hall CPA back in 2015, 16. Uh, we work with about 800 real estate clients across the United States at this point. We were an Inc. 5000 member uh, last year, hopefully again this year, one of the fastest growing companies in the United States. A lot of that is from our digital marketing strategy, which is essentially just give it all away for free online. <laughs> and uh, and a lot of people are able to take our stuff and DIY it. And a lot of people say, you know what, that's kind of confusing and you guys sound like domain experts. So we're going to come just work with you. And that's kind of been our strategy. So it's been a lot of fun, very rewarding. Uh, we have a team of 42 people in the United States. We have 20 offshore between the Philippines and India. So kind of turning into a relatively sizable operation at this point. Uh, and we provide tax strategy services, tax preparation services, and accounting services to real estate investors at every part of their journey. So it's been kind of an interesting thing. I didn't intend to structure the firm this way, uh, but we have clients that are at the very beginning of their journey and they're trying to buy their first rental. And we have clients that are at the end of their journey with, and I kid you not, like nine figure net worths. We have a couple uh, large, very large private equity funds that are nine and 10 figures and where they're outsourced CFO. So it's kind of turned into this unique thing where even though we're a relatively small CPA firm with 42 US based uh, people, we can still scale with clients up to literally nine and, and 10, 10 figures of value, which is really neat. Um, and not something that you you really find in the marketplace. And again, wasn't something that I really intended, sort of just started to happen. And now it's become a little bit of a competitive advantage for us because uh, we can we can scale with you throughout your entire real estate journey. 
So let's start with the benefits of investing in real estate. Now we've got a few benefits, right? We've got cash flow, we have appreciation. Uh, you know, real estate goes up over time in mo most of the time. Uh, it's an inflation hedge, right? You, you, you lock in debt at today's rates. And I guess today's rates aren't that great, but if you locked in debt, you know, 12, 24 months ago, fixed rate 30 years, uh, you've got payments at a three, 4% rate that you can stick with for 30 years. So it doesn't matter if the, if, if uh, rates go up, it doesn't matter if we have crazy inflation, um, you still have your same payments. And the nice thing about that is that your income goes up over time, the asset values rise over time, but your fixed payments stay the same. So they essentially get cheaper on a real dollar basis. So it's a good inflation hedge. Then we have leveraged returns, which is great in up markets, not so great in down markets, right? So leverage returns help us grow faster. I can put $20,000 down on a $100,000 home. If that $100,000 home increases 2% to $102,000, well, now I've made an additional $2,000 of equity on my $20,000 investment. So I've actually made a 10% return on my equity. So it's uh, it, it can accelerate my returns, but it can also accelerate my losses in down markets. So you got to be careful there. But the fourth big one is tax sheltered profits. And that's what we're going to be talking about for the rest of this presentation. So the big thing to understand is that when you invest in rental real estate, you get a tax benefit called depreciation. Depreciation is a phantom expense that shelters your rental profits. Oh, excuse me. Uh, it's a, uh, sorry, let me back up. So depreciation is a tax benefit that shelters your, uh, your rental profits. Basically it's a deduction that you get to claim every single year, regardless of how you acquired the property. Now I say that to mean if you bought the $100,000 single family home with cash, you would have the exact same depreciation as if you bought the $100,000 home 20% down. So it doesn't matter what type of financing you get. Uh, depreciation is calculated by taking the purchase price less the cost of land divided by 27 and a half years. So $100,000 purchase price minus the cost of land, maybe it's $20,000. Uh, the net is 80. I would divide that by 27 and a half years. And that's my annual depreciation expense that I get to claim every single year. Depreciation is meant to track the deterioration of your asset over time. So I think sometimes new investors can get confused with this because they think, well, appreciate uh, real estate appreciates over time, right? It goes up in value, which is true, but it's also true that your roof literally falls apart. The windows fall apart, right? The flooring falls apart. Everything inside the real estate actually falls apart. So depreciation is meant to track that deterioration over time. So what happens though is, it, it becomes this, this amount that you can claim every single year without having to come out of pocket for it. You came out of pocket for your depreciation expense at the beginning of your relationship with your rental property when you bought it. That's how depreciation is calculated. So every single year, you're going to get to claim this as a deduction without having to pay for it again. And that's why it's a great tax shelter. So if you look at this example, let's say we have a revenue of $20,000, expenses of $15,000. That means our net operating income is $5,000. But if I have depreciation of $6,000, then my profit is actually a loss. I lost $1,000, right? 
because I had I had net operating income of 5K. My depreciation was 6K. So 5K minus 6K is minus $1,000. Now, the interesting thing here is that $5,000 actually hit my pocket, right? So that was that was actual cash, cold, hard cash that I get to keep. But I get to tell the IRS that I actually lost money. All right. So not only do I get to shelter my 5K, I don't have to pay taxes on my $5,000 today. Um, I also have this $1,000 tax loss that can be deployed and used against other income streams. So I can further gain tax savings by, by using this tax loss against other income streams. Now, it's really important to understand the difference between a tax loss and an operating loss. Now, in the prior example, you know, I told you we had a $5,000 operating profit, right? If we had an operating loss, that would not be good. Uh, so an operating loss means that we're actually losing money, but I can have operating profit, net operating income, and still show a tax loss for tax purposes, thanks to depreciation. So it's really important to, um, to, to be able to separate the definition of those two in your mind. Because I think sometimes, especially if you were to invest in like a syndication or a real estate fund, uh, you get that K-1 back and it shows like a huge tax loss. Sometimes that can really wig people out because they think, oh my gosh, this thing's actually losing a ton of money. But in reality, it's just a tax loss. It's not actually an operating loss. So really important to understand the difference. Operating income means we actually made money. Operating loss means we actually lost money. A tax loss does not mean we lost money, uh, especially when you factor in that depreciation expense. Now, like I said, we've got the extra $1,000 tax loss. Uh, and that can translate into tax benefits, assuming that we can use that tax loss to offset other income. So, you know, in a, in a macro perspective or from a macro perspective, we're now talking about we are sheltering our income from our rental real estate. We are also potentially able to shelter other income thanks to the tax loss that this rental real estate creates. But in order to use that tax loss against other income streams, I have to understand the passive activity loss rules. And this is where it gets a little complicated. So I'm gonna stay high level. These slides are relatively high level. Um, but if you invest in rental real estate, uh, so sometimes, sometimes, well, let me back up. If you invest in rental real estate, uh, you will learn about the passive activity loss rules one way or the other. Now, the interesting thing is that everybody, everybody on this call, everybody in the United States is subject to the passive activity loss rules, but we often don't learn about them until we invest in rental real estate. Because what happens is I'll, I'll buy that rental, I'll get that $1,000 tax loss, and then I'll be all excited because I get to, I get to use the $1,000 tax loss against my W-2 income only to find out that I can't, right? So I, I will, I'll, I'll prepare my taxes, my CPA will prepare my taxes, and then they'll say, hey, that $1,000 tax loss that you had from your rentals, that's getting suspended and carried forward into future years. You cannot use it to offset your W-2 income. And then you get frustrated because you go, well, what's the point? I'm not getting any tax benefits. Now, you're still getting tax benefits because you're still offsetting that $5,000 of net operating income, right? So let's not forget that fact. You still get tax benefits, but it would be great to be able to use that $1,000 tax loss to offset my W-2 income or my other income. So in order to do that, I have to understand the passive activity loss rules. In 1986, Congress added Section 469 to the Internal Revenue Code. 
And what they said is all losses, or what this did is it effectively made all losses uh, in excess of income, all passive losses in excess of passive income disallowed and carried forward into future years until you either sold a passive activity at a gain where the losses could then be used or until you had passive income, all right? Um, so these rules basically, basically created two worlds. It was the passive activity world and the non-passive activity world. And in the passive activity world, they put all of my passive activity, or they put rental real estate. So that goes into my passive bucket. And then they also put any trader business that I do not materially participate in. Now, I, I know I'm throwing a lot of words at you, but hang in there. So all rentals and any trader business that I don't materially participate in, that goes into my passive bucket. In my non-passive bucket is my W-2 income and my business income that I do materially participate in, right? So like I run my CPA firm. Well, I am materially participating in my CPA firm because I'm there every day. I make decisions every day. I work every day in my business. That is a non-passive activity, just like your W-2 job is. And ironically, they also say capital gains on stock sales are non-passive activities. Interest income is non-passive. Dividends is non-passive. Now that sounds weird, but that's the way the code is written. So basically rentals are passive and everything else is non-passive with the one exception that if you do invest in trades or businesses as an equity partner, uh, not corporations, we're talking like LLCs and S corporations, not C corporations. But if you invest in businesses as an equity partner and you don't make decisions, you don't actively participate, that could be a passive activity too. An example I like to give is if I invest $100,000 into my local hair salon and they're going to use that hair salon or that uh, 100K to expand their locations, I get a little equity stake and they give me uh, a share of the profits. The profits coming back to me would be non, uh, would be passive because I'm not participating. I'm not materially participating in that activity. I just gave them capital to use to expand. So that those profits coming back, those would go into the passive bucket and those could be used to offset like rental losses. So I could use my rental losses to offset that type of passive income. So the important thing to understand is that these rules enacted in 1986 created essentially two separate worlds, two separate buckets of income your passive income bucket and your non-passive income bucket. And all of your W-2 income goes into the non-passive bucket. Because it goes into the non-passive bucket, it can't be used to, you can't use your passive losses, which are in your passive bucket to offset your W-2 income because it's in your non-passive bucket. It's a completely separate world. So you have to understand how these rules work to then understand how to get around these rules, right? Because you can get around these rules. You can jump your rental out of that passive bucket and put it into the non-passive bucket. And if you can do that, then you could use your $1,000 loss to offset your W-2 income and your business income. Uh, but you have to know how to get around these rules. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a little bit. But um, the reason that these rules were enacted in 1986 is because before these rules, uh, rich people would buy rental real estate, use depreciation to create tax losses, and then they would use those tax losses to offset their W-2 income. <laughs> so these rules were put into place to prevent that from happening. And that's an important piece of context for you to understand. All right. Um, so I kind of already... Oh, uh, yes. Brandon, one question came up from uh, Shrikanth. Shrikanth, you're going to come off, come off uh, mute and ask your question. 
Sure. And uh, I was doing that. Uh, I did have a question about passive activities. So on your tax return, are most passive activities represented through a K-1 or the Schedule K? Uh, maybe. Um, I mean, if you're investing passively as an LP, then yes. But like, like my CPA firm, I have two partners in my CPA firm. And we all get K-1s. Oh, got it. So, okay. yeah, yeah. So, so it's we still have to make that determination on the individual level per K one. Did I passively or did I materially participate in this K one activity? Got it. Um, yeah. Let's keep keep going until Shrikanth comes okay. back. Cool, cool. All right. So, what is a passive activity? All rentals are passive unless you qualify as a real estate professional. That's the except provided uh, under IRC section 469 C7, that's real estate professional status. So all rentals are passive unless you qualify as a real estate professional. If that's the first time you're hearing that term, don't worry, we'll explain it. And then any trade or business that you do not materially participate in, those two, two activities are passive, right? So all rentals and any trade or business that I do not materially participate in, pretty simple. Um, if I have passive losses that exceed passive income, the passive losses are suspended and they're carried forward. And in order to use those suspended passive losses in the future, I have to generate passive income in the future. Uh, or I have to sell a passive activity. Again, these are my two passive activities. I have to sell a passive activity at a gain. And then I can use suspended losses to offset that gain. So those are the two types of passive activities. Now. Let's look at an example of how this works from a tax benefit perspective. So let's say that we have a rental that has revenue of $40,000, expenses of 30, and depreciation of $20,000. Now on the left-hand side, I'm showing you, here's what happens if it's a passive activity. And on the right-hand side, I'm showing you, here's what happens if this rental qualifies for an exception to the passive activity loss rules and is gonna be considered non-passive, right? meaning that it can offset my other income, my W-2 income, 401k, Roth, rollovers, whatever it is, it can offset that type of income. So when you do, when you take revenue of 40 minus expenses of 30 minus depreciation of 20, we have a net loss of $10,000. Now remember, it's a tax loss because my net operating income is 40 minus 30. So my net operating income is actually $10,000. But because I had depreciation of 20, I get to tell the IRS I lost 10. So on the left-hand side, the loss is suspended and carried forward because it's a passive activity and we don't have any other passive income for this loss to offset. On the right-hand side, because it's non-passive, I can use this tax loss to offset my W-2 income, my other business income, whatever it is. So this $10,000 loss gives me a tax benefit of $3,700 if I'm in that 37% tax bracket, all right? So that's, that's, that's the benefit of understanding the passive activity loss rules. I know, again, I'm throwing a lot at you, but I want you to understand that if you know, if you learn the passive activity loss rules, just from a high level perspective, get a fundamental understanding, then you will start to see the benefits of being able to use these tax losses to offset your W-2 income versus having it suspended here. So making this non-passive puts $3,700 back in my pocket today. Now, 
that example just assumed regular old depreciation. But what we could do is something called bonus depreciation. So when you buy a property, uh, you do, let's say we buy that single family home, $100,000 and the land is $20,000. So my building basis is 80K. I depreciate $80,000 divided by 27 and a half years. So the 80K over 27 and a half years, that would yield $3,500, dollars a year or something like that. So my annual depreciation deduction is low, it's small. Uh, and the reason that we net out land, by the way, is because land does not deteriorate over time. Land is dirt, dirt does not uh, deteriorate. So you can't depreciate land. But uh, we go back to our example. So $80,000 divided by 27 and a half years, somewhere in the ballpark of $3,500, $3,700 a year. If I were to instead do something called a cost segregation study, which is the practice of saying, hey, yes, $80,000 is the building, but guess what? There's a lot of components that make up that $80,000 that are gonna depreciate faster than 27 and a half years. They're gonna, you're gonna have to replace them multiple times. Things like your carpet, your appliances, your fixtures, right? There's different things in there that can get assigned depreciation lives of five, seven, and 15 years, rather than everything being depreciated over 27 and a half years. That's, the, that's what a cost segregation study does. It's the practice of identifying all those components. So if you go through that process, um, then you'll end up with maybe $20,000 being allocated to components that have a five, seven, and 15 year useful life and you'll end up with the remaining $60,000 allocated to the building, and that's still depreciated over 27 and a half years. But the $20,000 that the cost segregation study pulled out and, and allocated the five, seven, and 15 year lives, that can be bonus depreciated because you can use bonus depreciation on anything with a useful life of less than 20 years, all right? So the cost seg shows us components that have a life of five, seven, and 15 years, all less than 20. So in this example, if I can pull out $20,000 of depreciation in my 100K example, then I get I get a first year increase of $17,000, right? So instead of depreciating basically $3,500 a year for 27 and a half years, in year one, I'll depreciate 20K. So if we continue our example from the prior slide, revenue of 40, expenses of 30, our net operating income is 10, in that example, we were able to pull out $60,000. So we get to write off $60,000 instead of $20,000, right? Um, now we have a tax loss of $50,000 versus 10. And so now the tax benefit, if it's non-passive, is gonna be $18,500, okay? So nothing changed except for the fact that I just did a cost segregation study and I'm accelerating the recognition of my depreciation expense and that's gonna put a lot more money into my pocket today if I can get around the passive activity loss rules. Um, I'm actually gonna skip this slide because I think it's too complicated for what we're doing right now. You, I can ask a question. Um, so with 80% bonus depreciation, you still have 20% regular depreciation, which occurs over the 27 and a half years or 39 years. Yeah, so, so great question. Uh, and that's kind of what I was saying a minute ago. If you have, so first off, we're identifying components that are useful life of five, seven, and 15 years. So we can take 80% of the cost, 80% of that value today. The remaining 20% is depreciated over 
the useful life of that asset, which might be five years, might be seven years, might be 15 years. Got it. Okay. Um, two more questions, and then I think we should continue. Sure. One is, can you talk a bit more about, I'm sorry, uh, what happens if later you want to use the property differently, say a long-term rental or as a, a home or as a family member? Yeah. So from a depreciation perspective, no recapture. You only recapture when you have a taxable sale. So if I moved into a rental, totally fine. Um, if I switched into a short-term rental, totally fine. No recapture is due. When I sell it at some point, I will pay recapture tax. Got it. Okay. And then, um, uh, great. I All think right. we can keep it going. Continue. Cool. Okay. So we've talked a lot about passive activity loss rules, bonus depreciation. We now understand that we've got this tax loss problem because if we can use it, that's great. But if we can't use it, it just gets suspended and carried forward. So question is, how can we use it? To answer that question, you have to know how to get around the passive activity loss rules, right? We want to basically move our rental out of the passive bucket and put it into the non-passive bucket. There are three ways to do this, primary, primary ways to do this. The first way to do this is on entire disposition, meaning that I sell my rental property. Okay, so if I sell my rental at a gain, then I can use losses from other rentals to offset the gain on sale from that rental. If I sell one rental at a gain and I invest in an LP uh, and they give me a big tax loss back, that's a passive loss that can offset the passive gain. This is actually a place where a lot of CPAs get confused and CPAs that don't do like real estate tax planning all the time will tell their clients, no, the gain on sale from rental A cannot be offset by the loss on rental B or by your, your syndication K1 investment that you made, uh, which is not true. You can use losses from one passive activity to offset losses or to offset income or gain on sale from another passive activity. It's very important to understand that fact. Uh, and I talk about that netting effect in our various online communities that we have. Uh, but you're looking at form 8582. It's one of the most important forms that any real estate investor has in their tax returns. It's more important than your 1040, Schedule E, everything. Um, there's a numerous reasons as to why, and I'm not going to go into them right now on this presentation, but uh, that's where that netting effect happens. And you can see it, uh, all, all your losses from your passive activities, offsetting your income and gain on sale from other activities. Uh, another way to get around the passive activity loss rule, I know I say here, earn less than 100K, 150K, but really it's earn less than $100,000. If you earn less than $100,000, you can claim up to a $25,000 passive loss allowance. You really don't have to do anything if you earn less than $100,000. You just have to, you have to actively participate, meaning you gotta make management decisions, but you can have a property manager running your rental. You gotta own at least 10% of the activity and that's it. So if you actively participate, meaning you approve leases, you approve bills, uh, and then you own 10% of your rental activity, and you earn less than 100K, you can claim up to $25,000 of passive losses from your rentals, which is pretty sweet. You don't have to do anything to claim those losses. Now, as your income creeps up above $100,000, this $25,000 loss allowance starts to phase out. Uh, item B here shows you that phase out. But basically, once you hit 150K of income, this $25,000 loss allowance is zero. All right, so if you're at like 155K of income, sometimes we have this, this conversation with clients. They'll say, well, I've got 155K of income, so let me put $8,000 into my 401K, uh, and now I'll be able to qualify for the $25,000 loss allowance. Well, if you have 155K of income and you put $8,000 into your 401K, then your net here would be 147, and you would qualify for a $1,500 passive loss allowance. 
not the full 25k. So it's just important to understand that this 25k, it's you get the full allowance at 100 if your earnings are $100,000. But as you earn more than 100, that $25,000 starts to phase out. So simply dropping into the range of 100 to 150 will not help you very much. You really got to kind of get down to 120k or so in net earnings to really benefit uh, substantially from this. The third way to get around the passive activity loss rules is to qualify as a real estate professional, which we're going to spend some time talking about next. Uh, and then there's a bonus, and that is the, oh, where did that go? That's the short-term rental exception, which we will also touch on briefly. So real estate professional status. This allows you to overcome the presumption that your rentals are passive, but simply qualifying as a real estate professional means nothing. You still have to materially participate in your activity. Now, we're going to go over what all this means. We're going to go over the tests uh, to qualify as a real estate professional and material participation. But the important thing to understand here, to wrap your mind around this definition, is I could be a real estate professional, but it doesn't mean that my rentals are non-passive. My rentals are still passive unless I specifically work on my rentals. Okay, So I can be a real estate professional if I'm a real estate developer. Maybe I'm developing full-time. Maybe I'm flipping properties full-time. Maybe I'm wholesaling deals full-time. Maybe I'm a real estate agent, right? All of those things will help me qualify as a real estate professional. But if I don't go and materially participate in my rental properties, they are still passive. We have clients that think that, well, I'm a full-time builder. I'm a full-time real estate broker. So I don't need to worry about all this stuff. And, and they're partly right. They don't need to worry about this. They don't need to worry about qualifying as a real estate professional. But if they forget to personally work on their rentals, their rentals will still be passive. So really important to understand that qualifying as a real estate professional simply allows you the opportunity to make your rentals non-passive and finally get them into that non-passive bucket so that you can cost seg and bonus depreciate them and use the tax losses to offset your regular income. So to qualify as a real estate professional, you've got to spend 750 service hours in a real property trader business in which you materially participate. So 750 hours, about 15 hours a week. You got to spend more than one half your service time in a real property trader business in which you materially participate. Now, what does this mean? You got to spend more time in real estate than you do anywhere else. So we're all Amazon employees here. I mean, I'm not, but all you guys are Amazon employees. Most of you are. Uh, if you're working at Amazon full time, you're not going to be able to meet this test. You got to spend more time in real estate than you do at Amazon. All right. This kicks out everybody with a full time job. Now, there have been people that have tried to convince the IRS that they uh, spent more time in real estate than they did at their full time jobs. Every single one of them has lost in tax court. So uh, I'm, I'm an optimist, eternal optimist. I believe somebody one day will successfully convince the IRS and tax court that they spent more time working in real estate than they did their full-time job, but it hasn't happened yet. And I would not want to test that with our our clients. So if you work a full-time job, you're not going to be able to qualify, but your spouse could qualify if your spouse is not working a full-time job. And if your spouse qualifies, then on your jointly filed tax return, you have a real estate professional status tax return. All right. So you can still get around it uh, and qualify as a real estate professional, even if you are working a full-time job. And a lot of our clients do that. All right, so 750 hours, right? More time in real estate than anywhere else. Well, the next question is what hours count towards real estate professional status? Um, and I like to start this by saying what hours don't count. It's a little bit easier to talk about. So the hours that don't count are investor hours. What are investor hours? These are hours that any investor would spend 
to make sure that their real estate investments are sound, are solid, are making a return, right? So time spent um, studying, reviewing, monitoring financial statements, paying bills, doing bookkeeping, uh, filing tax returns, coordinating with closing attorneys and mortgage brokers and real estate agents. Those are all things that any investor would do. So the, this time is not going to count for real estate professional status unless you are managing the day-to-day of the property, meaning you don't have a property manager uh, after you close. So you're going to run that rental DIY. You're going to do it yourself. Um, if you do that, then your investor hours do count. Okay. So that's, it's like this cool thing where investor hours normally don't count, but if you DIY it, they do count. Uh, so this moves a lot of our clients into DIYing a few of their properties so that they can count all of their investor hours towards real estate professional status. Anytime in this presentation that you see italicized uh, letters, uh, that means that it's a tax court case. Okay. So I like to back up my statements with real proof authority so that you know that I'm not, I'm not um, uh, giving you a bunch of fluff. All right. So the other time that does not count education and research hours do not count. There's two tax court cases there. Now, the reason that these two, these two types of times don't count is because you're not actually making the property do anything, right? The property is not going to uh, increase rent collections or reduce bill payments, um, become more effective or efficient thanks to your education and research time. Now you might be able to argue that one way or the other, which is true, but in general, it's not going to happen. Same thing of, you know, being here on this presentation, this is not a real estate professional status hour that you get to log because listening to this tax presentation is not going to help you collect rents next month, right? You're going to collect rents next month, even if you never attended this conversation. Um, same thing with investor networking sessions and, uh, conferences that you might go to, it's not going to help you collect rents next month. You're still going to, you're still going to collect rents. You're still going to pay those bills. So research time, education time does not count. And this is always a bummer when I give these presentations, people are like, well, I spent a lot of time, right? Yeah. I mean, everybody does. You got to be educated. You got to do your research. But if you think about it, one, there's no way to really verify it. Uh, so it would kind of just open up a Pandora box of like what, what type of research time counts, what type of education time counts and how do we know that they actually did it? So that's one issue. But the other issue is that I can sit in the comfort of my home and just click around on the internet and uh, call it education and research time. Right? So we, we can't, we can't do that. we got to be at the property swinging the hammer or communicating with tenants. I'll show you all the time that counts here on the next slide. Um, but education and research time does not count. Travel time is another piece that does not count uh, in most cases. Now the IRS audit technique guide says definitely does not count. The IRS audit technique guide is something that is given to all field auditors. It's their kind of frame of reference on how to do an audit on real estate professional status on the passive activity loss rules. Uh, so they say no. So that means you're already fighting a losing an, an uphill battle. You're already in the, the losers box. Okay. If you're counting your travel time, but there is hope. In this tax court case, laborers commissioner, the tax court ruled that the travel time did count for the taxpayer. Now, the interesting thing about this one was that all the all the rentals were local to the taxpayer. They were self-managing the rentals and they the way that they were managing the rentals required them to basically site visit every single day. So every day they hopped in the car and they drove around to all the rental properties, which were all within about a 30 minute drive of their home. So that's when, like if it's local transportation time, it could count. Now, if you're driving two hours away to go check on a short-term rental or to go check on one of your rental properties, that's when that travel time is not going to count. All right, um, I'm gonna skip that slide. Uh, 
let's talk about what does count. So I'll give you a second to read this. And what I want to kind of point out here is that this all looks like time uh, that would be considered property management time, right? So if you think about it, if, if I buy a rental and I give it to the property manager to manage, well, the property manager is the real estate professional, not me, right? I, managing my property manager is not time that counts towards real estate professional status, no matter who tells you that. Um, so, uh, and I know that I've got a bullet point here, right here that says it does, and I'll explain that, but, um, you know, simply supervising or managing my property manager is not going to count, but my property manager, they're the ones that's swinging the hammer. They're the ones that's communicating with the tenant. So they are the real estate professionals, right? That makes sense. So if I want to be a real estate professional, I should probably self-manage my rentals. Now I do have supervising a property manager here. So let's talk about that. Um, if you have, you know, five rentals and they're all out of state and you talk to your property manager once a month for a status update, that is not going to count as real estate professional status hours, even though that is supervising a property manager. When I say supervising a property manager, I mean, you are basically managing your portfolios full time because it's so expansive and you have a bunch of different property managers in a bunch of different locations and states that you have to keep tabs on. That is a completely different uh, situation. And that would be something where we would feel comfortable saying, yeah, supervising a property manager is um, still counting as real estate professional status. So this is not for somebody that's like got one or two or three rentals out of state. This is going to be somebody that's got a pretty expansive portfolio and it takes them a significant amount of time to uh, to track it all and um, uh, and manage it all. Uh, one other question, and then I think we should move on. Uh, Mehua had a question. Spout, does a spouse need to be entitled to be considered as a rep, um, real estate professional? Good question. No. As long as you're filing a joint tax return, no, spouse does not have to be entitled. Yeah, great. Thanks. All right. Let's keep rolling. Um, one big thing here is when I... When, when we talk to different investor groups and stuff, some, there's always people that are like, well, you know, I'll like kind of, I'll just like, I'll, I'll, I'll figure out a way to kind of finagle it, you know, and, and make it happen. Um, just know that real estate professional status is heavily litigated. Section 469 is one of the most litigated sections of the entire tax code. Um, and if it's heavily litigated, that means there's hundreds and thousands of audits behind the scenes that never even make it to tax court. So don't try to game the system. Make sure that you're working with folks that know what they're talking about here. Uh, I'm going to skip this slide, but it is in your handout. Again, this is just 750 hours and more time in real property trades or businesses to qualify as a real estate professional. Here's that operations thing that I was just talking about, real property operations. So I think I think short-term rentals falls in there. My partners do as well, but we don't feel um, confident enough to encourage our clients to spend thousands and thousands of dollars on litigation fees by taking that position at some future point. Um, all right, so now let's talk about material participation, right? So we said you got to qualify as a real estate professional, and then you also got to materially participate in your rentals. So material participation, three. there's seven tests for material participation, but the three that we see most often are right here. You participate more than 500 hours in your activity. Your participation is substantially all, meaning that I buy a rental local to me, and I do literally everything myself. Uh, I, I don't hire any help. I don't hire any contract labor, nothing. I do it all myself. Uh, if I do that, I could reasonably take the position that even though I spent 30, 40, 50, 60 hours on that rental activity, I did everything. So my participation is substantially all the participation. Boom, I am materially participating. 
And then the third one is to participate 100 hours and more than anyone else. Um, so these are the three tests to materially participate. So again, I qualify as a real estate professional. I can do that through like real estate brokerage, property management. I can do it through landlording, you know, however I get there. I qualify as a real estate professional, but my rentals are still passive unless I meet one of these three tests. So I still got to work on the rentals 100 hours more than anyone else, substantially all or 500 hours at a time. So for the purposes of material participation, spouses can combine their hours, but that's not the case for the real estate professional status test. Now, I don't want you to get confused by saying, you know, one of your, your spouse can qualify as a real estate professional and then jointly you have a real estate professional status tax return. That's still true, but your spouse had to meet the two real estate professional status tests by themselves, right? So they have to do all 750 hours by themselves. They have to spend more time in real estate uh, than their regular, whatever other income streams they got by themselves. But once they do that, now you can combine time for material participation purposes for these tests. Okay. So here's an example of how this works. Um, let's say that your spouse is a real estate agent and they spend, they're doing it part time. So they spend a thousand hours being a real estate agent. They don't have any other jobs. They stay at home with the kids the rest of the time. Uh, they will be a real estate professional because they spent more than 750 hours in a real property trader business being an agent and more time than anywhere else. So they are a real estate professional, but let's assume that your spouse also hates rental properties, all right? And, but you're like listening to this presentation, you're like, no, we have to buy rental properties. Well, your spouse can qualify as a real estate professional. They did that by themselves, right? But you can hit the material participation thresholds by yourself because when we look at material participation, we're now looking at both spouse, spouses for these tests, okay? So you can combine your time. Your spouse could do 50 hours. You could do 50 hours. Your spouse could do zero. You could do 100, right? You can combine time for the purposes of material participation. This makes it substantially easier for short-term rental owners to achieve material participation because now you don't have to hit 100 hours by yourself. You can team up with your spouse to get it done. I will say, do not like count, oh, we both went to Bed Bath & Beyond to shop for furnitures and fixtures and it took us both two hours so collectively now we get four hours. It doesn't work like that, right? So if you're both going to the same location, and you're doing the same task, count one spouse's time, not both. Don't double up, but you can combine time for the purposes of material participation. All right, um, I'm gonna skip this one too. Uh, the, let's move um, on to- yes. The material uh, participation test, is it you have to meet one or do you have to meet all the tests? Just one of the tests, Just great one, question. Yeah. Yep, you only have to meet one. Okay, rentals that are not rentals. These are short-term rentals, all right? So you see down here, Airbnbs, VRBOs, et cetera. Um, now, I included this crazy citation here because this is where you find this definition. The reason that I included it is because most likely, it, when you go back to your accountant and you say, man, I learned about this cool thing with short-term rentals, can you check it out? They're gonna be like, sounds like a scam. Uh, but it's right here in the regulations, which means that there is authority to get it done. And the good thing about this regulation is that it's extremely clear. It's black and white. Uh, so what that means is high confidence level that we can do this and pull it off. Also, there's multiple tax court cases that support this. And the IRS uh, released a CCA in at the beginning of 2022 that basically reconfirmed all of this. So what I'm telling you is true, but you might go to your own accountant and they might go, that sounds like a scam because they just don't see this or deal with this all the time. Now, the important thing to understand here is that there is a definition uh, to the term rental activities. 
All right, and that's important because if you have a rental activity, the only way to make it non-passive is to qualify as a real estate professional. But the real question is, do I have a rental activity? And if your average period of customer use is seven days or less, let's just say less than or equal to uh, seven days or less, then you do not have a rental activity, right? Big X there. And if I don't have a rental activity, then I don't have to qualify as a real estate professional. All I have to do is materially participate in my activity. If I materially participate in a non-rental activity, then I have a non-passive activity, which means that I have successfully moved my rental out of the passive bucket and into the non-passive bucket. So I can work a full-time job. I can buy a million-dollar beach home. I can cost segregate it. I can take a $250,000 tax deduction against my W-2 job. I'm going to let that sink in for a second because this is big. Um, I can do that against my CPA firm income, right? I'm sitting in my beach house right now. Uh, so you can absolutely do this. We have a lot of clients that do this, uh, but you do have to make sure that you materially participate and your, your material participation time log, you should absolutely always have a time log that tracks all these hours. It's gotta be bulletproof because if you start claiming big tax losses against your W2 income or your business income, the IRS will come knocking. Does not mean you're wrong. Just means you need to be ready. So if your average period of customer use is seven days or less, you do not have a rental activity, meaning you do not have to qualify as a real estate professional in order to take the tax losses from your short-term rental activity. So you can do that cost seg, bonus depreciation, and enjoy the fruits of your labor. Now, let's talk about where to report this thing. Okay, so if we have a short-term rental, most of our rentals go on Schedule E. Uh, so if you have long-term rentals, you always put them on Schedule E. And when we talk about short-term rentals, there's a lot of confusion around where to report the short-term rental because people think, well, if it's not a rental activity, then it can't go on Schedule E because Schedule E is for rental activities. And they're not wrong. So what what they'll do is they'll put it on Schedule C instead, where you report self-employment income, like running a CPA firm. Um, the problem with putting it on Schedule C is that when you start generating profits, you now subject that, that income to a 15.3% self-employment tax. So the question becomes, should you do that? The answer is rarely you should do that. So very few people are going to have a Schedule C short-term rental. The correct answer in most cases is we're gonna report the short-term rental on Schedule E like we normally would, um, but we're still gonna take that tax loss as non-passive. So just because section 469 says it's not a rental activity doesn't mean that we're not gonna report it on Schedule E. We're still gonna do that because it is technically a rental activity. So you would report it on Schedule C if you provided things like daily maid services and laundry services to your tenants while they stay there, right? Maybe you provide them breakfast or other meals. You give them tours of the location. That is substantial services. That's a Schedule C activity. Very few people do that. If you're doing repairs, cleaning, maintenance, trash removal after your tenants leave, that's not um, substantial services. It's not Schedule C. Uh, Further, your actual citations, again, because every once in a while you get some CPAs and say, it's got to be Schedule C because it's not a rental activity. Okay, fine. If you don't like the last slide, let's talk about should it even be subject to self-employment taxes. IRC Section 1402A1 says there shall not be, or there shall be excluded uh, from this definition, the self-employment uh, tax definition, rents from rental real estate. Okay, so you have a citation here that says, hey, rents from rental real estate should not be included in the definition of self-employment taxes, that 15.3% tax. So therefore, we shouldn't put it on Schedule C, we should put it on Schedule E. Now, um, the nice thing about this, this section is that it doesn't cross-reference to Section 
469. I know I'm getting a little technical here, but think about it as like these sections, these code sections all stand alone in the internal revenue code. So section 469 can say, hey, you don't have a rental activity, but section 1402 can say, hey, you do have a rental activity, okay? So that's where it gets a little weird, but, and that's why there's a lot of confusion specifically on this topic. Okay, threw a lot at you, but let's talk about the end here. All right, so I talked about section 1031 a little bit at the beginning when we were talking about uh, depreciation recapture, but this is like, this is end game, right? We just, we have this rental, we accelerated depreciation, we extracted our tax savings, we reinvested those tax savings in more rentals, rents and repeat over and over. And now it's time to reorganize our portfolio. Um, so we do a 1031 exchange. Uh, we just, we, the rules for 1031 exchanges are down here. These are summarized rules. Um, but it's, it's great because I can just, it's like a, it's like monopoly. Remember monopoly growing up where you get all the little houses and exchange it for a hotel. It's the same thing except real life. So we're just exchanging for bigger, bigger properties, bigger properties, better properties, um, over time. And what's beautiful about it is that if you swap until you drop, which means swap until you die again, not to get morbid, um, you can 1031, 1031, 1031, 1031, die. Your kids now inherit your assets at a stepped up basis. Whatever the market value is, that becomes their basis in the asset. And they can start the process all over again of depreciation and everything. So there, there is a very realistic scenario where you never pay depreciation recapture. And that is why we um, highly encourage our clients to run those cost segs, get that bonus depreciation when it makes sense, when, when you can move the properties out of that non-passive or out of the passive bucket and put them into that non-passive bucket where your other income is. Now, um, if you have a partnership, if, if you are investing as a uh, limited partner or as a regular partner in a partnership, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, you cannot 1031 exchange your partnership interest because you don't actually, you don't technically own the underlying asset. The partnership owns the underlying asset. I know it's a weird concept, but that's that's how it works. Um, so option number one is to hope that the partnership itself wants to 1031 exchange the property, right? But all the partners have to agree. That's rare. It's not it's very rare does that actually happen. Option number two, you can roll your gains. So you can get your share back you can roll your gains into a qualified opportunity fund. So that is definitely an option that we've seen people utilize. Uh, option number three, you can buy a new syndication investment or a new partnership investment, buy into a new partnership. They'll do a cost segregation study. They'll generate bonus depreciation. They'll create a tax loss. And you can use that tax loss from the new partnership to offset the gain on sale from the old partnership. So again, that concept of these activities can net out against each other. Or option number four, you can just use the gains in the cash to buy your own rental property. You cost segregate it on your own, and then you use the passive losses that it generates to um, offset the gain on sale of the partnership. So the point is, is that if you have a partnership stake and they're going to pass a big gain back to you, you cannot 1031 exchange that. But you can still offset the gain by executing one of these strategies. Uh, we see a lot of people do three and four. And we actually call it the lazy man 1031 uh, by no means to throw shade at 1031s. We think that they are amazing, uh, but sometimes you can't do a 1031, but you can kind of effectively do the same thing uh, just by buying into real estate again and getting that bonus depreciation, getting that tax loss to offset this, the gain on sale. So that is it. Um, um, a quick, quick question. Contact information. 
Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead with the content information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, um, I'll, I'll stick around for questions. My contact information is on the left here. You can email me if you'd like. Feel free. Myself or my assistant will point you in the right direction. Um, if you're looking for like content or help or something like that, we can make those connections as well. Uh, on the right hand side, that short term rental stuff, I know is probably uh, it, was, it was we covered a lot, very high level. If you want the details, you can go here and you can download it. Um, so it's just something that we'd like to show people that we have that resource. All right. Questions. Um, on the previous slide, uh, and maybe just in general, as an alternative to 1031 exchanges, um, what do you think about Dele uh, the DST, the Delaware Statutory Trust? Yep, you can do that too. DSTs, ticks, um, yeah. So, it, it, but that's still, uh, yeah, it, it's uh, it is in effect the same thing uh, yeah. as doing a 1031 exchange without doing it. Yep. Okay. Great question. Um, questions from anyone? I know we covered quite a bit, um, and. Yeah. <laughs> You guys ask really good questions. Normally, it's like really high level, and we just kind of breeze through it. But uh, this one, yeah, we got we got kind of in the weeds. So. Yeah, I guess sorry and maybe not sorry. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, Brandon, you spoke about your podcast. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We have a podcast. I think it's like ranked. Like I was looking at it recently. It's like 150 uh, in all the business podcasts in the world, wow. which is cool. Um, yeah, we've got we've got about 120, 30,000 downloads a month. Um, but it's called tax smart real estate investors. So if this was an interesting presentation to you and you're like, man, that that's great. And I want more details. Um, we have a bunch of podcasts, a bunch of podcast episodes out there, tax smart real estate investors, myself and my, and, and my partner, Tom, will take deep dives into topics. We'll also talk about things very high level. Uh, so we kind of like hit best of both worlds. And then we bring some people on from time to time to kind of talk about what they're doing in their portfolio and stuff like that. We're actually, uh, next week, which I think would release two weeks from now, we are bringing on a big uh, syndicator sponsor uh, to talk about what they're seeing with other sponsors who bought, who got into sponsorship over the past like couple of years. Uh, they all took out a lot of bridge debt and floating rate debt, and now they're not able to make investor distributions. And we're going to talk about why that is critical to understand at as an LP investor. So it'll be a really interesting conversation, but we, we do stuff like that. And then we we'll, we'll do some really deep dives on tax stuff too, because again, like what we find is we do these presentations and then you go to your CPA and you say, well, why didn't you tell me about this? And the CPA goes, that's a scam. Uh, so we'll, we'll have like tons of content on it so that you can like just educate yourself and then have more sophisticated conversations with your CPA. So we find that once you start asking questions around different code citations and research, the CPA goes, wow, this is actually really cool. Thanks for bringing this to my attention. And now we're going to go do this with our other clients too. So, yeah. That's fantastic. Uh, I think we are at time. And uh, thank you very much for spending time. Uh, for those that participated, uh, I do have Brandon's presentation. So I'll make that available as well. And this has been recorded. So I'll post that on the page once it's available. Uh, Brandon, again, thank you very much. Uh, enjoy the, the sun and the weekend while you can. <laughs> thanks, John. I appreciate it. And thanks everyone for sticking through a tax presentation. I appreciate that. <laughs>